Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, Director of Strategic Communications for Democracy in Color, book editor of Brown is the New White, and mom to Kaylee. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Steve. I'm super excited about today's episode. As am I. So let's get right to it. We are honored to be joined today by an esteemed romance novelist and tax lawyer, who last year became the first black woman in the history of the United States of America to ever win a gubernatorial nomination. And despite having the election stolen from her through voter suppression and deception, she nonetheless won more votes than any Democrat who has ever been on the ballot in Georgia. And that, in, that list includes Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama. She is the person who was chosen to literally speak for all Democrats in America when she delivered the response to the president's State of the Union address in February. She may well be the next vice president of the United States. She might be the next president of the United States should a divided Democratic convention turn to an inspirational and unifying figure next summer. And so we are honored to be joined by the inimitable Stacey Abrams. Thank you for joining us today, Stacey. It is my delight and my honor. Thank you. So I'm particularly excited to have this conversation with you right now because it feels like an important historical moment. Uh, you and I first met eight years ago, back in 2011, and a lot has happened in these past eight <laughs> years, right? That, yes, uh, indeed. <laughs> so we've re-elected the country's first black president. The country then elected a white man who ran on xenophobia and racial fear, using the power of the presidency to do everything he can to make America white again. We had the historic election of 2018 with yourself and two other African-Americans as Democratic nominees. We had unprecedented number of women and people of color elected to Congress. The New York Times has launched this audacious project, 1619 Project, to redefine the definition of America, American history, to put the role of racism at the, at the core of U.S. history. And Trump, facing that diverse and women-led women House of Representatives, will likely be just the third president in history to be impeached by Congress, all while he tweets not-so-thinly-veiled threats about executing whistleblowers and the possibility of civil war if he was removed. So I guess my first question is a broad question. What do you make of all of this, and how <laughs> would you describe this political and historical moment we're in? I, I, I think that while it feels... It feels traumatic, and it is, in its way, unprecedented because of the form of technology that's used to convey the, you know, the dystopic approach that Trump is taking to leadership. It's not new, and I think we have to remember our history, and, and that's why the 1619 Project is so critical, because it not only looks at the origins of racism in America, it tracks it through our history and reminds us that it was a racial and xenophobic dynamic that led to how our roads and bridges, our, our um, interstate highway system were created, mm -hmm. that almost every facet of how we define private, you know, our participation in the middle class has been defined by and, in fact, structured by racism. And so when I think about what's happening, we have had incompetent leaders before. Right. We have had leaders who misappropriate the office for their own gain. We have had xenophobic leaders that come out of political moments that are often in reaction to progress for 
communities that are considered marginalized and disadvantaged. And we have always found a way forward, not with perfection and certainly not with speed, but there has been progress made. And I think my my natural belief is that as demography changes, so too does the speed with which we react. And so while you know, Reconstruction was met by Jim Crow, and we have this just fairly <sighs> evil, it seems such a strong word, but I don't think there's a more precise word to describe his treatment of the various communities that comprise the new America. I believe that our opportunity is going to be to continue to seize access to power and to leverage it not for revenge, but for uh, making certain there is more progress to be made. And I think we can do that. I think that's why for every negative that we can list, we can point to markers of progress. Well, so in terms of the obstacles we face (laughs) towards that project, that progress, I did want to to dive into that because it seems to me that one of the things that's really overlooked, there's so much that they're doing, the scale and the scope and the breadth of their attacks is really breathtaking. And so it's hard to know like where to focus. And it seems one of the things that's overlooked to me is the centrality of the role of white racial fear and anxiety in empowering this president, right? So there, uh, uh, Ron Brownstein wrote a piece yesterday for the CNN, who is an expert analyst and writer on issues of race and politics and the country's changing demographics. We quotes Cornell Bel- uh, Belcher, right, the African-American pollster. Cornell saying, fear of demographic and cultural change largely explains the Republican determination to defend each Trump excess. Trump supporters believe the barbarians are at the gate. And when the barbarians are breaking down the gate, nothing else matters. That's why Trump can get away with it. But it seems to me like a lot of progressives and Democrats are afraid to explicitly acknowledge and address race, or they just don't get it, for fear of losing support of white voters. And so I know that you've had to deal with this a lot. You know, you're in the you're in the the home state of Martin Luther King, one of the key states to this country's civil rights movement, right, in King's I Have a Dream speech, right, he contrasted other parts of the country with Stone Mountain in Georgia, right, saying let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California, but not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. So can you tell us what Stone Mountain is, why Martin mentioned it, and how did it come up in your race? So Stone Mountain is the single largest bass relief in the world, and it is a carving that depicts three Confederate generals on their march towards ignominy. Uh, the reason it features so heavily in the civil rights conversation and certainly in uh, Dr. King's speech is that in the 19, I think the 1910s, 1920s, with the resurgence of the KKK, it was launched. Their, their, their inaugural reanimation happened on Stone Mountain. Uh, the Daughters of the Confederacy helped fund the carving, and the state of Georgia owns the relief. So they own this monument to racism, this monument to the Confederacy, this monument to treason. And it was in the shadow of Stone Mountain that much of the terrorism that faced African Americans and Jews uh, in the 1920s, 1930s, and forward, that's where it began. And so it's 
it, it, it literally looms over Atlanta. Wow. You can see it from almost anywhere you, you stand if you're you know, in elevated ground. You can see this, this mountain that is not only a monument to the failed uh, insurrection of the white supremacists who wanted to maintain slavery during the Civil War, but it was also driven by and funded in part to animate that movement again in the 1900s, and it was part of the National Movement for Confederate Monuments. But it also happens to be now a largely African-American community that surrounds the mountain. And so the dichotomy that is America, that dichotomy and that contrast of where we begin and where we are, I think, is emblematic of why Stone Mountain remains such uh, a focal point for despair and for you know, possibility. So how did it come up in your It felt like, frankly, I read the, <laughs> the Atlanta Journal-Constitution asking you, but it seemed like they were trying to, like, trap you into saying something that would hurt you with white people, frankly. So how did no, it so come up and how did you deal with it? It actually came up in the context of Charlottesville uh, mm-hmm. when Trump decided that there were good people on all sides and in the wake of the national conversation about monuments, I was asked actually by a, a national reporter, uh, we, we were getting several incoming requests to find out what I thought. And so I anticipated this question and on Twitter laid out my reasons, laid out the historical nature of what Stone Mountain was and what it became, and laid out my deep concerns about its continued celebration. Uh, because it does not include context, because people do not fully understand what this is and why it would have such you know negative connotations. Because it's also the site of a massive Fourth of July um, you know, fireworks, and people love it. People love going to Stone Mountain. It's a beautiful park, and I would I I always credit the current um, curators and managers that they have done an excellent job of trying to provide context. The problem is you have to want to know better to learn. There is nothing that precludes you from coming to Stone Mountain, seeing the celebratory bass relief, and not understanding why it is problematic. And in my mind, that continues to to damn us. Because if we do not place our history in context, if we aren't willing to have this broader conversation. Now, once I said it, it was absolutely used by those who wanted to uh, strike fear into the hearts of those who saw my campaign, saw my candidacy as a threat to the natural order of things. And it became a rallying cry for multiple communities, including some who threatened me on the campaign trail. Wow. And so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to understand better, see if we can think about as we're at this moment, right, that's so racially explicitly racially charged, right? And since, uh, since you might be our vice presidential nominee, I won't name names here, but let's just say that some prominent Democrats explicitly advocate avoiding topics that have to do with racism, oppression, marginalized communities. And yet you didn't go that route, right? So you didn't, you didn't hide from the Stone Mountain piece. You, you know, uh, embraced talking about immigration, which a lot of people don't want to talk about. You were the first uh, Democrat ever to march in a uh, LGBT parade? Was that? Uh, I was the first gubernatorial candidate. Gubernatorial candidate. So you weren't afraid of those issues, and yet you did better than anyone who's ever run. And so how, how do you think about those 
types of issues and what should be the approach in terms of avoiding mentioning them or tackling them? And what do you think, frankly, of the capacity of the white voters to be able to engage in this type of conversation? I think there is a, there's a mythology that has grown up around this idea that if you don't talk about it, it doesn't matter and it won't hurt you. And the reality is that's not true. And for most communities that are marginalized, that are disadvantaged, that are in the minority, we are long aware of the fact that the fact that they don't talk about us has no direct impact on whether we will be harmed. Uh, In fact, the harm is inversely proportional to the amount of attention directed to our needs. So my approach to standing for office, to doing the work I do, regardless of whether it's a campaign or simply administering my duties as a legislator, is that you cannot solve problems you refuse to acknowledge, and you cannot serve people you don't understand. I wanted to win Georgia, and that meant I had to talk about and be a part of the lives of those I wanted to serve. And that meant particularly in a state where the growing population is largely comprised of communities of color, in a state that will be majority minority by the end of the next decade, it was incumbent upon me to do the work of actually being in those communities. So not only talking about the fact that I was a tall black woman with natural hair and you know medium-toned skin and you know, I didn't look like what people were used to. I mean, they weren't gonna, they couldn't miss me. But I also had to talk about what parts of my life resonated and led to me being here, but also what obstacles my race and my gender uh, may have created. And then I had to do the next step of finding out what was happening in other communities. So making sure I spent time in the Korean community, making sure that we built the first multilingual canvas, that we spent money on Spanish language television, that I was in the LGBTQ um, parade, but also that I worked with the physically disabled, who are often completely left out of access to politics. And what we proved was that by paying attention to communities, by centering their needs, and by talking about core issues that cut across all of these communities, including the white community, that you can get votes. Because not only did I triple Latino and Asian Pacific Islander turnout, increase youth participation rates by 139%, increase black participation by 40%, I actually got the highest percentage of white votes in a generation. And it disproves that myth that by acknowledging race, by acknowledging harm, that you somehow disadvantage yourself in the larger community. The people who are going to vote against me for that reason were always going to vote against me. There was nothing I was going to say or do that would change them. But the people who weren't going to vote because they didn't believe I could see them and therefore what was the point, those were the people who turned out who had not turned out before, and that's the reason it's worth doing it. And so as you are saying, you got more white votes than certainly prior statewide candidates. And so mm-hmm. you that what was the experience in terms of not, you know, feeling that you were going to lose those votes? And clearly, what was that dynamic as you were engaging with white voters around <laughs> these types of issues? Well, one, I went to white communities and I said the exact same thing that I said in black communities and in brown communities and in every community of disadvantage. I said the same thing. So one is being willing to be consistent in your message. It is worse to try to placate and pander and thereby prove yourself hypocritical or you know, insincere than it is to simply tell the truth and let people question you on whether they share your values or not. Number two is I didn't decide there was a white community I couldn't speak to. My job, my jobs, I've never had a job that allowed 
me to segregate my outreach. And the same is true in politics. My responsibility is to be everywhere and to engage everyone. Now, you may not agree with me, and you may decide that because you've heard from me, now you will never vote for me, and you will work as hard as possible to defeat me. But at least you've made a rational choice. And so one thing that we did differently was that we actually spent money on country music radio. We, I spent time in white rural communities, but I also spent time in black rural communities and in Latino rural communities. I didn't allow my acknowledgement of race to dissuade me from going to places where the conversation of race is hard. Right. And, and to put a fine point on that, doing that, you actually increased your percentage of the white vote than other candidates have had. I did. How, how do you think this applies to the tactics, I guess, around the impeachment fight, right? So on the one hand, there's like the ferocity of the, the you know, fighting back and the confusion that, you know, Trump and his allies are trying to whip up does argue for a very, you know, tactically narrowly focused, easily understood uh, process that, you know, focuses just on the Ukraine call. But on the other hand, he's done a whole bunch of things, right, that merit impeachment. I mean, Al Green introduced impeachment articles back in 2017 for uh, uh, associating the majesty and dignity of the presidency with causes rooted in white supremacy, bigotry, and racism. So what's your thinking around the how to proceed on the um, – moving forward to be able to win uh, majority support and understanding for why this man should be impeached. So having served in a much less uh, intense and powerful position than uh, Speaker Pelosi, I have absolute understanding of her approach. Impeachment is not simply the introduction of articles, the introduction of inquiry. It is securing the votes of majority of the people in the House. You have to have 218 votes for anything to be manifest. Therefore, the responsibility is to make certain that the representatives of the people understand why their votes are necessary. And that then means making sure that the people that they represent also understand what this is. In our nation's history, we have only impeached two other presidents. We had a third under consideration, but we've only done it twice. And that happens because getting that many people, getting 218 people in modern times to agree that the highest office in the land has been so perverted as to necessitate removal, that is an extraordinarily high bar, and it should be. But if you cannot get the votes, wishing doesn't make it so. Mm-hmm. And so I do believe that starting with something that is clear, unassailable, and doesn't require having watched, you know, having gone to law school or watched at least seven seasons of Law and Order right. and three seasons of Madam Secretary, that it's helpful to have something that seems this explicit and this clear. It begins the conversation. But if you listen closely to what the Speaker has said, every committee that is working on issues that could rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors are all still working. But the focus right now is the piece that is most easily understood and thus most easily acted upon. Because it does not matter if 70% of us want it to be so. If 218 legislators cannot bring themselves to cast that vote, then what happens is that there's an article of impeachment that fails and that becomes the clarion cry for the Republicans. Look, the Democrats don't even believe he's wrong. That's problematic. Hi, Stacey. Thanks. I, you know, fingers crossed, and thanks for your uh, 
insight in that question. I have a, I'm just going to jump in here with another question. Uh, so another challenge facing Democrats and progressives is what uh, Steve has sometimes called the near apartheid state in the progressive movement. So for example, Steve wrote a piece in The Nation after the 2016 election showing that for Democrats in a party whose voters are 47% people of color, every single Democrat and progressive political organization, everyone with a budget over 40 million was run by a white person for a total of 1.5 billion. <laughs> and I know that this reason, the reason for this was not because those were the only people who wanted to or the only people who were qualified to oversee those large multi-million dollar budgets, but it's literally the message that we as people of color, I feel, get in so many fields. And it's something I personally also experienced myself when I was working as a journalist in majority white newsrooms, and this included, by the way, uh, newsrooms in major cities around the country. So my question is, I know you address this a lot in your book, Lead from the Outside, which, by the way, I loved, and I'm so looking forward to giving a copy to my daughter, who is a huge fan of yours, too. Yeah. But for our listeners, I'm curious if you can just share briefly, how the question is, like, how have you approached the challenge of finding, training, and empowering people of color and women and what you um, call in your book, you know, minority groups, marginalized uh, people from marginalized uh, groups? I have been... You know, befuddled like you by the cry that there is no one available. And so my response is fine. Let me show you where they are. Right. Uh, when I became a <laughs> Democratic leader, I actually first hired, my, when I did my first round of hiring, it was African American and white. And I took myself to task because I can't say that I believe in representative democracy and that the House needed to represent the population if I, too, fell into the trap of only hiring people who looked like me or people I was used to hiring. And so I intentionally built a, an internship program, hired a young Latina woman who I then tasked with building an internship program. I brought her on full-time as soon as I raised the money. And in the span of the eight years I served, in the, the 11 years I was in the legislature, but the seven years I served as leader, in seven years, she graduated more than 400 interns, Wow! the most diverse Amazing. community of young people who now have political skills. They did not just politics. They did politics and policy. Uh, we were very intentional that they also moved around. They did communications. They did finance. They did research. They were being brought into a skill set that would allow them to, one, figure out what they were good at and what they liked, and two, to have experience, because often it's the, the old trope. You can't get a job unless you have experience, and you can't get experience unless you have that's, a job. That's right. My task was make sure they had jobs. The okay. next task was that I was then told, well, yes, they are trained, but they don't have the high-level experience. They've never run a statewide campaign. They've never run a congressional campaign. Of course, they've never run one because they've never been able to yeah. do so. And <laughs> that's right. Because Candidates typically hire the last person who did it. They don't hire the last person who won. They hire the last person who did it. And because winning right. is not actually the metric used, right. what happens is that a losing someone who has a history of loss can get a better job than someone who simply they, hasn't had a chance. And so, call it failing up or something. Start, failing up. <laughs> yeah, not only failing up, but being rewarded for that failure. Mm -hmm. and, being celebrated for that failure. And so 
<clears throat> the second thing we created was called Blue Institute, and so Jenny Castillo ran the internship program for um, the caucus. Al, um, Ashley Robinson helped me create the Blue Institute along with Jenny, and uh, they graduated young people who were trained in the high skills of campaign management, communication direction, digital. Because the other piece was that if you can get communities of color into the door, they're often blocked at the ceiling of field. They don't get to do finance. They aren't trained to do digital or communications, and they certainly aren't considered for campaign manager jobs. So my response writ large is we have to not only create the space, but we've got to hire people for the jobs. And when you look at the campaign that we ran in 2018, we didn't talk about diversity. We did diversity. We had every community of color represented in leadership roles. But more importantly, they were allowed to make mistakes, and I think that's the most fundamental responsibility. If we don't allow young people and women, or if we don't allow people of color and women to make mistakes in these jobs, they will never learn in these jobs and they will never grow in these jobs. That's right. White men get to fail, even some black men, but mostly white men get to fail. Everyone else, you have to be perfect or you're out. And we as candidates have the responsibility to allow for mistakes. The parties have to allow for mistakes and have to cultivate leaders that are willing to take risks because that's the only way we're going to win, not only now, but going forward. So um, I know we're going to have to wrap up shortly. I just wanted to add, looking ahead to 2020, that um, you've decided that you're not going to run for president and not run for senator. So I was wondering if we could just say a little bit about how you came <laughs> to those decisions, and that, I know you're under a lot of pressure. Um, people are pressuring me to pressure you around those different <laughs> decisions. So how you decided to, to make those decisions to not, uh, you know, I don't know if succumb is the right word, but to the, you know, the, all the, the flattery and the ego stroking, et cetera. And then since you're not doing that, what are you going to be doing in 2020? Well, I, I want to add to the last thing I said to Charlene by saying this, that Steve Phillips has been one of the strongest investors and supporters of the work that we've been able to do. So you don't just talk about it, you don't just write about it, you invest in it, and you help make it possible for more people of color to enter the pipeline, and that's an extraordinary thing. It also, I would say, helped me think about where I fit. I am not someone who wants a job simply because it's there. And in that space, I thought about going to the Senate. I do not want to do that job. I have worked in the legislature. I believe in the legislative process. I'm good. I've, I've done 11 years. I'm good. And I also believe that I've done important work in Georgia that demonstrates that any authentic candidate willing to do investment and to recognize the importance of diversity, that that candidate can win. And so I am committed to helping a Democrat win the Senate in the state of Georgia, in fact, two Senate seats. I also thought about running for president. I'm not, that's not where I want to be right now. And I thought, looking at the slate of candidates and looking at their messaging, I was pleased with and I am proud of the Democrats that are running. And I did not see that I had a specific value add in this contest. But I did see that my value add comes in the role of making certain that voter suppression is attacked early and that we are not on the defensive in 2020, that we are ready and proactive. And so I started a voter protection organization. Fair Fight is working in Georgia, but now nationally through Fair Fight 2020, we are working to make certain that 
every battleground state is armed and ready for voter suppression actions and that we are prepared to push back. And fairfight2020.org is a great place to learn about all of that. Uh, in addition, I launched Fair Count. Uh, the 2020 census is going to tell the story of people of color in America. It tells the story of our country, but there has been an intentional decision made by the Trump administration to erase communities of color from the narrative. And it is a structural problem, because if people of color do not participate fully in the census, not only do we forfeit billions of dollars in aid that belongs to our communities, but we also will be underrepresented in every level of government because reapportionment, which sets the standard for congressional seats and flows through every state legislative race, city council race, school board race, those are all determined by the census numbers. And so if hard-to-count communities do not show up in the census, if we let them win, then they will win not only for the next 10 years, but for a generation of underinvestment and, I would say, erasure of who we are. And so fair count uh, .org is the, the organization that I uh, would love people to learn more about what they can do to help impact the census. Fairfight2020.com to learn more about uh, our work nationally on uh, the efforts to make our democracy work again. Great. And so just in our, in our final moments, you would like to try to end our episodes on a, on a lighter and more fun note. And so Charlene and I were, were both very excited to uh, see in your book uh, and to learn about you. I've known you all these years and did not know that you were such a huge fan of soap operas growing up. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we only had ABC, so I watched uh, Ryan's Hope, All My Children, One Life to Live, and General Hospital, and Edge of Night until it was canceled. I love soap operas. They made me very, very happy, and they influenced much of my romance writing. So we just have to do a quick uh, um, round robin around a soap opera character that was okay. important to you. So, um, Charlene, did you want to, from your <laughs> Yeah, I, I got, I'm not going to lie. I was totally excited to read your book, and I'm reading and reading, and I was not expecting a reference to Port Charles, uh, and it brought me way back to growing up in New Jersey, coming home, racing home after, I think it was middle school every day, and watching GH. Um, so what was the question, favorite character? Yeah. Oh, okay, so I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but... Um, the first character that came to mind that definitely made an impression on me was Blackie, a.k.a. Justimos, who was um, the bad boy character. He was, oh, you know, absolutely. I was a middle schooler. I was a, he was cute, but he was also he was rebellious and he had long feathered hair. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, probably today you couldn't have a white character with that name. But I think that when I think back <laughs> to those days, I had a poster of him in my bedroom. I'm just going to say that was... That was a, a memory from from those days for me. That's so funny. And in, in addition <laughs> to General Hospital, which Susan and I both watched when we first came together, we also watched All My Children. And one yeah. of the characters that we really liked was uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar as Kendall. Absolutely. And, and that actually got us more into Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? So we watched all <laughs> those episodes, right? You know, every girl who might be a slayer will be a slayer. And then I had a whole full circle experience where I went to meet in Beverly Hills with uh, in December last year with a major Cory Booker backer who lived on the same street as Michelle Geller, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller. And so I'm getting out of the car at 730 in the morning to go to meet with this guy. And I see her coming out of her house to get in her car. It was really all <laughs> I could do to not actually rush up and get a <laughs> selfie. So that, that's my... that, that was admirable restraint. Sometimes I'm a sunny princess. I, I loved all of them. I loved the entire arc of the uh, uh, ISB, but uh, 
I love Sunday Corinthians and the original Carly. They were my favorites. Great. All right. Well, I know you're super busy, Stacey, so we really <laughs> appreciate your taking the time um, with us today as we launch this podcast. And we really, you know, appreciate and are grateful for your partnership. It's been quite the quite the ride so far, and we're looking forward to where we go from here and um, collectively and, and also seeing where your career goes. And so thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. This has been delightful. Great. That was great. It really was. And it's been such an incredible journey and story uh, with Stacy's that I recently found the email from December 2010 where Ben Jealous introduced me to Stacy. Ben was then the president of the NAACP. And it's pretty incredible that both Ben and Stacy then went on to win their gubernatorial nominations, as well as our friend Andrew Gillum. And so people don't appreciate just how historic a year it was. And in the entire history of this country, there have been only two African-Americans ever elected as a governor of a state and no black women. So when Stacy or Ben or Andrew would call me last year, I took great delight in answering the phone saying, which black gubernatorial nominee is this? There's so many. <laughs> That's so amazing. That's great. All right. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. And thank you to our special guest today, Stacey Abrams. You can find out more about her organization, Fair Fight, by going to fairfight.com and about her other organization, Fair Count, by going to faircount.org. Please help us get the word out about this new podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, or find us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded at the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.